0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk.
1: A uh, nice bit of variety on the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Uh, we'll start with the business post which tells us that tensions are flaring in government over proposed cuts to carbon emissions. We're told that there are now some, some serious rows going on behind the scenes, particularly between the Green Party and its partners in government talking about any compromise on uh, carbon emissions for farmers could be seen as a real problem. Uh, effectively, people might remember that the, the carbon ceilings uh, for a lot of these sectors have already now set in stone and they're now in the process of trying to translate them into t- tangible measures. Um, agriculture was supposed to cut by between 22 and 30%. And the basis seems that the Green Party wanted to be at 30% End. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil wanted to be at the 22% end and the difference in between uh, would be quite a lot of uh, difficult measures for farmers and it basically seems that the, co- the coalition is uh, likely to come to terms and come to blows on that uh, and it's worth noting all of that because Also on the front page of the Business Post is the news that a global food crisis uh, albeit now triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and not to do with anything domestically uh, is likely to materialise by the end of the year according to the leaders of some of the world's largest food companies. I might come back to that a little bit later this hour. Uh, There's also a Red Sea poll uh, in this week's Business Post uh, Sinn Féin maintaining its high record uh, 36% support in this month's poll Uh, a decline in support for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael has widened the opposition party's lead on the two traditional parties of government People might remember that the last uh, Red poll it was the first time that Sinn Féin had uh, outpolled both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael combined. Because the coalition parties are now sliding, uh, Sinn Féin's support of 36% is only one point away from the combined support of all three uh, of the coalition partners. Uh, that's the business post this morning. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday, IRA bombing victims sue Gerry Adams. Gerry Adams is being sued in the UK High Court for his alleged role in masterminding three IRA bombings, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. Three victims of the terror attacks in Manchester and in Canary Wharf in London in 1996 and the Old Bailey in 1973 are seeking just nominal damages of £1 uh, in a landmark case that could see the long-standing accusations about Mr Adams and his involvement in the provisional movement uh, tested in court for the first time. Uh, Sinn Féin's uh, former president has always denied membership of the IRA or any involvement in its terror campaign in the North and in Britain. Uh, the development comes as uh, Sinn Féin has gained political momentum uh, North and South recently. So the three people pursuing this case somebody who were injured uh, in a bombing at the Old Bailey in 1973 which was the start of the IRA's uh, bombing campaign in mainland Britain Um, there's also somebody who was injured during the the bombing in uh, Canary Wharf uh, in 1996 people may remember that as being the breach of the ceasefire that was in place at the time and another person who was injured in Manchester in 1996 that was a bombing uh, which took place on the same day as England were playing Scotland in Euro 96 people might remember those two coinciding somebody who was injured in that bombing all three of them now taking uh, cases uh, against Gerry Adams only suing one pound in damages but I suspect what they really want is the court to find that Jerry Adams was actually involved in that campaign. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times, Uh, this is an interesting take on the the story about the Kinahan crime gang uh, and some of the the woes that they're facing now. Uh, The Kinahan cartel has suffered significant financial losses, John Mooney tells us, as a result of the collapse in the value of cryptocurrency investments, which it has been unable to convert into hard currency because of the sanctions introduced by American authorities. Uh, Intelligence available to officials suggests that the cartel has lost tens of millions and possibly more, because the market value of the world's top cryptocurrencies has crashed by more than $2 trillion in recent months, which has been wiping out gains in Bitcoin and Ether. The gang has been unable to convert its crypto holdings into cash because advances in technology allow the law enforcement agencies working in conjunction with private firms to monitor any attempts to try and convert crypto into hard currency and then to deposit them into a bank account. Transactions are recorded via blockchain, which is a digital public ledger, as some people might know. And effectively, that is now making it almost impossible for them to empty out uh, some crypto accounts, which they know to be theirs, despite the the falling value of them. Um, Also on the front of the uh, Sunday Times, And this is fascinating because we're supposed to have an election to uh, choose a new mayor for Limerick by the end of this year. Bertie Hearn was addressing the Citizens' Assembly, which is examining that whole question for Dublin. Uh, he has rubbished what he calls grandiose plans for a directly elected mayor of Dublin. Uh, he says that it would just be a dog's dinner of a system and it would be run by celebs who would easily get elected and then quickly tire of the task of running Ireland's largest city. That's worth remembering uh, because Bertie Hearn, when he was uh, in government uh, in his first term, uh, tried to introduce the idea of a directly elected mayor and then dropped the idea because he thought it would all be uh, overtaken by celebrities. Uh, and finally for now, the front page of the Sunday Independent... The off-lead there is Justice Minister Helen McEntee facing a cabinet backlash over plans to give Gardaí powers to use this controversial facial recognition technology. People might remember we spoke to Francis Fitzgerald about that a few weeks back. Uh, but the main story in the Sunday Independent uh, by Mark Tighe a new signing uh, for the Sunday Independent who's just moved over from the Sunday Times. And I say signing because it's, it's football parlance because he's, he's still pursuing uh, his John Delaney stories in his new employer. Um, he says that John Delaney is trying to stop the investigators uh, from reading hundreds of emails in which senior FAI executives advised him on his personal business dealings and on family law matters. A two-and-a-half-year legal battle over whether the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement can access all of the emails that it seized from the FBI's HQ in 2020 it has stalled the investigation into the soccer body and John Delaney's handling of his finances. There are 1,123 emails and a small number of hard documents over which he has maintained a claim of legal privilege and the OCD- ODCE has now asked the High Court to reject those claims which would allow Gardaí to review those emails as part of its criminal investigation. Mark is going to be with us a little bit later in this hour and he's going to talk us through exactly what is contained in that card. Correspondence. But for now, to go through everything else that's in this morning's papers, we are joined by uh, John Lee, who's the executive editor of the Daily Mail group in Ireland, DMG Media, and also by Lauren Boland, who is a climate reporter uh, with the Journal.ie. Uh, good morning to you both. Uh, John, we'll morning. start with the uh, that Red Sea poll. Um, probably not terribly surprising that Sinn Féin remains as popular, but do you think the coalition parties will now be slightly worried that the gap is getting so big that Sinn Féin alone is almost as popular as
0: the entire coalition put together? I'd say they're very worried. Yeah. Um like Leo Varadkar over the last two weeks, to me has been on a, a publicity blitz, and it must it must be very um, discouraging for him that that this has seen his party drop by one percent uh, in that period. Um, I write this week in my column about the fact that I've noticed around Leinster House a far more friendly ambiance between Finnofall TDs and Sinn Fein TDs. Oh. Uh, politics always moves on very quickly, and I'd say <coughs> Finnofall are looking at some of the movements of Finnegale to the to the right, uh, Leo himself um revived this phrase that he, he has become very well associated with people who get up early in the morning mm. only a few weeks ago in an interview. Um, he is um he is I'd say worried. Um Finna Falls leader Mehal Martin is worried and if you talk to the troops, the grassroots and um TDs in both parties the discussion is all about the leadership but what we don't see is any any particular figure coming up to grasp um to mm. grasp that crown do, do you And that opportunity need, to take over
1: Do you always need there to be A pretender to the crown Before you have those sorts of triggers Because I mean We're still awaiting Some sort of DPP guidance On whether there's going to be A prosecution against Leo Varadkar And if he decides That there are If the DPP decides There is to be a prosecution In that case One presumes Leo Varadkar can't remain on As leader of his party So it doesn't necessarily matter If you have somebody lined up Ready to, to wield the knife Because sometimes the vacancies Can just occur anyway Can't they?
0: That would be That would be an event um, that, yeah. um, uh, that if someone is forced to step down as leader, as we saw eventually, Bertie Ahern was, in some ways, um, uh, Brian Cowan was. We haven't really had that pre- um, predicament in Finnegale yet. I think in Finnegale would be. I don't don't think they disagree that they might have a ready-made leader in Simon Harris, who mm. has an extraordinary popularity. Uh, if you see him move around with younger voters. Um, and uh Finnefall don't seem to have that but there is a big event coming as we all know in December where um Mihal Martin will have to um present a rationale for him staying on as tarnisher if as some as some assume he's not going mm. to be going to lead the party yeah. into the next election. It was very and clear for,
1: this time last week on this program that he intends to lead on for the rest of this term and indeed into the next election.
0: Probably of course having, they always would say that Probably having it? learned from David Cameron it's not a good, good idea to let on you're not going to run but Leo Veradker has to present some form of plan he's doing his best I think now in pressurising his own uh, cabinet uh, colleagues publicly to, to take action I think on the cost of living mm. to take action particularly in the budget when it comes to taxes it's very hard to see when you um, to see that happen in the way that he would want it but he will have to present a, pa- a plan in December um, which will have an economic two-year programme to revive the fortunes of this government. He will be Taoiseach and the Taoiseach is the boss and he will have to shake up his cabinet. If they don't, I think Sinn Féin are not in a position now when I speak to them of uh, any form of ebullience that they're going to have a, a, an overall majority, for instance, which is very mm. difficult in Irish politics. But need but, to find somebody to work with. And certainly they... they, they from long discussion, seems to be open to Fianna Fáil. They believe it'll be, in the words of one TD mm. I spoke to last week, a good government.
1: Uh, just to, to, before I go to, to Lauren and all of this, just to go back to your column today in the, the Mail on Sunday, it's on page 30 for anyone who's got a hard copy around. Um, the heading is, uh, it's Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin politicians that you see most in Leinster House huddles of late. And just to avoid any ambiguity, you're not talking about <laughs> Fianna Fáil TDs in huddles with themselves and Sinn Féin TDs in huddles with themselves. They're in huddles with each other
0: it's yeah it's 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 a sm- like when you're hanging around that place as long as I am, probably less than I used to, but um it's 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 small little movements uh, one would see like when they're going to division bells and that kind of thing, they're mm. chatting a lot more amiably. I'd also point out that and you know i'm not I'm not one of those journalists who avoids pointing out um, Sinn Fein's past, which is legitimate, mm. but there are, I also point out that there are a lot of career politicians in, in Sinn Féin you know they they want to get into power and and when they get there they want to remain in power and you, you, you would look at some of the electoral histories of people like um, Mary Lou Macdonald Ono Brin um, uh, uh, Porrick McLaughlin Yeah you're making this point in the column today that th- those are people who have had
1: their fair share of electoral defeat but who stayed yeah, the course
0: Who stayed the course and they want to be in power they they, they have, have that profile that a lot of Fianna Fáil and Finnegale TDs have that they've been around a long time but had a few failures and they want to they want to get into power and you can always see those nuances in Leinster House when people start thinking ahead to the next mm. general election what what are we going to do and there's been for instance say a small little thing like Leo Varadkar's very enjoyable um contretemps with Piers Doherty in the doll last week i didn't see anything of all um TD and they are in coalition, mm. coming out and supporting Leo's stance on that. In fact, I saw Sean Fleming, a government minister, criticise it, and he d- he mm. didn't think it was a, it was a good yeah, thing. Yeah, you sort of wonder: do they um, feel
1: emasculated by there being a row between two major parties and then not being involved in it?
0: Yeah, maybe so. Me mm. um, Hall has had his, Martin has had his crack at uh, Mary Lou of, of late, but Leo and. Uh, Pierce Doherty I can't see them ever coalescing in a a coalition
1: Um, Lauren Boland uh, your reflections on this poll probably no surprise about the the headline figure of Sinn Féin being uh, the most popular party but the the degree of their their lead over anyone else maybe
2: I mean all you have to do is look at this chart on page 12 of the Sunday Business Post where you see Sinn Féin steadily climbing up Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil then next to it far lower down both declining uh, Michael Brennan on that page he makes the point that you know Fianna Fáil's highest point this year was 17% which I mean in, in itself is not fantastic yeah. for a party in government um, and it's continued to decline since then they're down now at 14% um, I I don't think that's a surprise to anyone considering this has been the trend yeah. since the general election You make
1: a very good point actually when you, you point out that chart because that chart has the, the general election result for each party and then the, the four most recent monthly polls it is. It's a staircase for Fena Fall. It's it's down one one point and then it's down another point, and you could probably write off each of them as being oh within the margin of error, but over time. It's a clear It's, a, it's a clear
2: pattern. It's a clear pattern when you have it going on like this for months and months and months. And um, I think obviously the sticking point right now is the cost of living. And I don't think uh, Michean Martin as Taoiseach has come out and kind of con- made a convincing case, I guess, of the the government's ability to tackle this. I think especially the sticking points around are we going to have to wait for the budget for the mm. measures to address this, which is increasingly seeming that that's going to be the case. Uh, despite, I suppose, Leo Radker's kind of utterings of Oh, never say never uh, Michal Martin has taken a much firmer line <laughs> yeah. of no it, it, never um, almost uh, to say that no it will be a case of waiting until October um, which I think is very frustrating for a lot of people because you know the point he's making is that well if we wait for the budget we can you know do it right kind mm. of put the funding in where it needs to go but that doesn't mean very much for people who who right now are you know are, yeah. are getting their energy bills who are paying for their groceries who are filling <coughs> up their tanks um, it's it's it, waiting for October for what Michal Martin yeah. is suggesting and other leaders are saying is going to be the crunch time in terms of coming into the winter and the autumn when, when things are expected to be even tighter. Well, And also,
1: not only does it is it a very hard sell to tell people that they're going to have to wait for another three and a half months before they get any kind of relief, but also then it, it raises the stakes for October that people would ex- expect nearly some sort of bonanza to make life a lot easier or they're going to be really underwhelmed by whatever does come out, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing and I think someone makes the point writing one of the papers today that, um, that actually when it, someone quotes an insider source um, saying Hugh O'Connell in the cindo page and he quotes his insider as saying the budget will have to be something that people can feel that's really what it comes mm. down to Um, and we know as well uh, it's that very short turnaround between the budget in October and then the reshuffle uh, yeah. two months later mm. um, which also I suppose casts questions or shadows over the budget in terms of the implementation you know if you've one set of ministers putting that together and then a, a totally different set actually having to, to follow through is.
1: Yeah, very fair point actually about how the people who are drawing up or people who are canvassing for the department might not be the ones who actually then get to preside over mm. all the, the the divvying up that they managed to win. Um, John, it, it is going to become an increasingly difficult argument we're going to have Pierce Doherty on this programme a little bit after 12 o'clock and he's going to be clearly making a case that there needs to be some sort of mini budget now there's going to be a debate and a vote in the door this week about whether there really ought to be um, it, it's hard to see what new rabbit the government can pull out of a hat to try and convince people that it is the right thing to wait given that they're only seeing the costs even in four courts, they're, they're going up almost literally by the day and people can't afford to wait three and a half months.
0: Yeah, and if you cast your, your mind back to January, we were told, um, uh, uh, some of the same people who <laughs> briefed me for a front page last week, I hope <laughs> people don't haul that out if it doesn't happen, but um, that w- there going to be no intervention in cost of living. And I, I always recall one minister saying to me, but if Russia invades Ukraine, all bets are off. Now, to to, to stand around at the moment and say, listen, guys, we can't do anything because things are going to get much, much, which they are saying mm. across the board, much, much wor- worse in the winter. Their answer would be, well, how bad do you think it is now? I think it's, a, it's a, it's yeah, again, you know, uh, not to be unfair, but a lot of these politicians in, in, in senior positions are around an awful long time and they seem to have not caught up with the fact that the budgetary process in Ireland is a very archaic process. Um, uh, way of doing things in the way they view it mm. the Ministers I spoke to last week primarily said you know the, the summer economic statement is now arguably more important than the budget it used to be a spring um, economic statement yeah. that will sh- reveal the amount of money they have to distribute uh, yeah, across the, old, the, the year. old fiscal
1: space, as we used to call it back yes. in the heady days of 2015 and 2016. Yeah,
0: yes, yeah, so it has another name, but they they, they calculate the amount of money. They, to say to people, we're, we, Could you hang on till October, the beginning of winter, until mm-hmm. we intervene on in this? When they have said, um, if you listen to Leo Varadkar during the week that, listen, we're not ruling out intervening. Is, is he making himself a bit of a hostage to fortune by saying that? Because at least
1: uh, if the Taoiseach had said, right, we're not doing it, we're, we're doing nothing. That's that's clearly the message that he gave on this programme last week. At least you know where the government stands and at least people are then going to say, right, well, I'm not going to get any help. So it's up to me to cut my own cloth to suit my measure for the next three and a half months. If Leo Varadkar is leaving the door open, be like, oh, well, if fuel costs go up, sure, you never know what we might have to do and then can't deliver it like, It's a very dangerous thing to open the door to something that there might not be any scope to actually do
0: Well th- that debate is ongoing in government and I suppose Leo always feels that he must take the initiative um, and all you can then do is take a signal from the tarnished to the next Taoiseach that um, something is going on and when you speak to them privately the, the, the word they frequently use is there is a there is a debate They also say there is there is room there to move immediately We're told that um, we can't do anything with um, with diesel, but there is room to mm. move an excise um, on petrol. The Taoiseach had come back from, you know, for statements that were made that people can't necessarily uh, follow through on. The Taoiseach came back from Euro- a European Council meeting uh, earlier this year and said that he had secured some kind of agreement for a derogation on VAT on fuel in Ireland. Yeah. We're, uh, we're now being told that that is not the case. So oh. they're struggling. They're struggling to convince us, everyone, that um, we can manage till October. When, as you say, mm. um, f- um, fuel is scarred. And to pick, pick up something that Lauren said, there there is a huge problem that the Taoiseach who is going to e- implement this budget if he gets that far. Won't be the Taoiseach when the act, the, the political ramifications have to wash through the system. Yeah. and one wonders when when you observe this bizarre situation, let's call it that, uh, a rotating Taoiseach, when you observe the civil service and politicians all now shuffling quietly across a room to the new boss, because in the way politics works in Ireland, we pretty much shut down July back in October, and the boss would then will in many people's eyes in the political system be be leo Varadkar. Mm. so in some ways for, for exactly that practical
1: point that there's no point in drawing up a budget under one guy if it's going to be implemented by someone else you're better off gravitating towards the guy who's going to be responsible for implementing everything that you're just
0: signing off on absolutely so you know it's it's very uh, d- does that then um undermine the Taoiseach's argument in these positions um, we could also have, let's not forget, a different Minister for Finance in December. Mm. So we have a budget um, enacted in October. Is that Micheál Martin's b- budget? Is it Pascal Donoghue's budget? Is it Leo Varadkar? Is it Michael McGrath? So I think they are in a, a strange p- space. When the t- the Tanishdon went on radio last week and was able to say, OK, some of my colleagues are saying we can't move, but we have full employment, we're in a fantastic position on our tax take mm. and we have significant firepower. And I noticed in a, in an interview with John Drennan today, Willie O'Dea has picked up on that, that we have fiscal firepower, yeah. yet we're not losing it. So using it. So I think there are a lot of contradictory messages when people are dealing with household bills of the nature we're all facing that is not helpful and we're seeing it reflected in their popularity in the polls. Um, You might have thought that I was very
1: rude actually to the two of you by by looking away at my phone while you were um, giving that answer John. The reason why I was looking through my phone is because I was trying to find a more recent opinion poll because it's not in in this week's Red Sea but there was a recent Red Sea poll I think conducted two months ago uh, for the Business Post asking people about the impact on their lives of rising cost of living and bear in mind we've had two months of rising petrol prices and everything else going through in the meantime. Uh, In that poll 50% of people said that they were already using savings or credit to pay for everyday expenses. That's right. So half the public were already doing that and Mm. that was two months ago before the price of fuel and then the basics like bread and pasta and everything else had gone up accordingly and your household energy bills and whatnot. The idea that most people would be expected to hang on till October I think is going to be a very, very difficult sale. Um, I do have to go to an average, but just before I do, Lauren, uh, there is uh, at least one piece today in in the Sunday Times Uh, posing the hypothetical question of how many TDs does Ireland need uh, pointing out that as a result of the census results published this week we're going to need at least a dozen more whether people like it or not
2: Mm. Um, yeah I'm not sure if anyone if anyone's answer to this question is that oh, we need more politicians <laughs> to help us out, um, I think is a, a really interesting. Not to get too into the numbers of mm. it, but Stephen O'Brien makes a really interesting comparison in the opening of that piece of if we used the formula that's used for calculating the number of T's in the doll, if you apply that elsewhere, that the UK's House of Commons would have two thousands. 2,250 MPs that Germany would have 2,810 members in its parliament and that there would be 11,160 congresspeople in the US <laughs> which Wow, 11,000 that's, <laughs> a that's some number Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it puts a it, it makes you kind of rethink are we doing it the right way here in Ireland um, if you if you applied it to somewhere mm. else and got those kind of numbers uh, maybe we do need yeah. another look at how uh, we do it. But things. at the
1: same time John, if we were to have any uh, fewer than 172 TDs next time around we'd need to have a referendum and one suspects that uh, politicians aren't in the business of voting for Turkey Christmas by reducing to by voting to reduce their own numbers or to avoid increasing their own numbers at least
0: no, and I think our system for um, proportional representation is, is superior to those systems that operate. The method of electing our, our politicians is superior to those in the United States and in Britain. And with all due respect to Stephen, uh, my good colleague, I don't know if the United States and Britain right now are um, models of <laughs> propriety that <laughs> yes, we should be, should be following. Yeah. Our, our local authority system is weak we've seen that during the house, the housing crisis uh, our our councillors claim they aren't um probably rightly they aren't, they aren't particularly well reimbursed for what they do and uh, they certainly don't have significant powers a lot of our power is is focused on the doll in the united states for instance <clears throat> You could look at it and say there are 100 senators to represent 300 million people, but they all have state governments. And we have seen Roe versus Way and and other things recently how powerful those state governments are. Uh, Proportional representation has allowed us not to have overly um, powerful politicians in in this country. And when when all that power is focused on one man like Boris Johnson or in uh, Donald Trump, one questions the righteousness uh, yeah of it. it's, it's not in many of the Irish papers
1: but Donald uh, not Donald Trump uh, Boris Johnson is saying this morning that he wants to rule into the mid 2030s uh, which would be <laughs> some tenure remember, I remember there being grief here when we talked about Eternal Enda and him serving on and on and on uh, Boris is nowhere near finished yet uh, we're going to take a break after the break we're going to talk to Mark Tige about his new piece in the Sunday Independent today about what might be contained in John Delaney's secret emails Only slightly jealous of Amy Hyland and Gory who's having a great weekend this weekend she answered Barry's call on Friday afternoon of the cash machine she entered this weekend 30 grand plus richer but it's not over there we've reloaded the cash machine which has already given out more than 1.3 million euro uh, so far this year and there's 15 grand in it this weekend specifically 15,371 euro and 4 cent that's 15,371 euro and 4 cent and don't forget there is a new number to text so if you want to get that money just text PLAY and only the word PLAY by the way to 57557 that's 57557 get your entries in before 3 o'clock on Monday and if it's you that we call after 3 o'clock uh, during the Moncrief programme answer your phone within 5 rings tell us the exact prize amount and you win every last cent of it that's 15,371 euro and 4 cent if you text play to 57557 costs are 2 euro 50 plus your standard message rate you must be over 18 to take part you're playing across the go network of stations full terms and conditions are on our website that is newstalk.com half past 11 this Sunday morning Gavin Riley with you on the record until 1 o'clock still joined in studio by Lauren Boland and John Lee and now also on the line uh, by Mark Ty who's a new signing with the Sunday Independent uh, Mark first of all congratulations on your move um, you are writing today about some of the emails uh, and other correspondence that John Delaney is somewhat attempting to conceal from people who are investigating his governance of the FAI tell us more
3: yeah very much so so um, for the last two and a half years um, February 2020 the ODC and Gardie working for uh, acting under a search warrant issued by the district court went into Abbottstown the FAI headquarters and Went into John Delaney's office, seized his computer, uh, seized his email, seized hard copy documents, and since then, basically over the last two and a half years, Delaney, kind of e- ably uh, assisted by his legal team of Aidan Eames and uh, Paul McGarry, senior counsel, of saying, well, "Look, there's a over a thousand um, emails here which are legally privileged. They're they're records that relate to legal cases, ongoing litigation, and so you can't get them." And this case has been fought kind of quite uh, strongly uh, from the ODCE over the last two and a half years before judge, Leone Reynolds. um, And there was a hearing um, four weeks ago on this kind of final um, hearing on this. Well, it might be the final hearing saying, you know, there's 1,123 emails left kind of in this, there was a quarter of a million seized. That Delaney is maintaining his legal privilege claim, and what we've seen and what we've published in the Sunday Independent today is uh, detailed what those what's in some of those emails.
1: Mm, so obviously, you don't have the, the the information of what exactly is said in them because that that's the content which he's still trying to um, trying to to keep hidden. But there's you kind of have, if you like, metadata. You know that who exactly he's corresponding with, and, and it, it seems pretty remarkable from from what you're saying that he is corresponding with other people involved in senior if, if senior uh, roles at the FAI but not really about FAI business, about his own personal dealings.
3: Exactly, so to to maintain his claim of privilege, Delaney has a burden of proof and he has to say, here's why these records are privileged. And so he submitted this spreadsheet to the court, um, which gives details and that's what we've obtained in the Sunday Independent today. We've gone through that and it's remarkable in showing that there's hundreds of emails between, a lot of them between two senior executives who are no longer with the FAI, Ria Walsh, who was like the legal manager and operations manager and interim CEO as well and uh, Carl Heffernan, who was brought in, a former banker, who was brought in to be the FBI's commercial director by Delaney. And what the metadata, the spreadsheet shows is that they were kind of intimately involved in some of Delaney's personal business dealings, like the purchase of a one million euro mansion down in North Room in Wicklow, his uh, property company, JMPHE, and a related company, Pillarview, where a lot of money uh went from um both uh, some of the money actually came from legal settlements that the FAI made on behalf of Delaney so if you remember around Rio uh 2016 the Olympics um Delaney was kind of brought into that uh, old ticketing scandal and unfairly it, it turned out to be and he ended up suing you know, over half a dozen Irish media and some international media you know because the Brazilian Brazilian police were talking about are putting a search warrant yeah, out? Yeah,
1: this is because he was um, he was second in command at the OCI to Pat Hickey at the time, exactly, so there was a presumption he was, that he may have been involved in the same sort of yeah, uh, business, which he wasn't. There with, yeah, was there under
3: Pat Hickey, yeah. So, but Delaney and the FBI got hundreds of thousands in settlements from the media, and some of that money, as is as shown in this metadata, A&L Goodbody, who were the solicitors for the FBI, transferred some of that money to a firm called Pillarview, which was run by Delaney's friends. Um, and now they've denied kind of knowledge of how, what the company actually has done when I've spoken to them. But th- th- this metadata shows some of these emails discuss Pillarview. View. Uh, Carl Heffernan, who is the FBI's commercial director, was involved in some of those discussions about Pillarview. And this is something I know from my own investigations that the garde working for the ODC have interviewed people saying, what do you know about this company and why it was receiving money from mm. you know FBI-related matters? So this is all very... <laughs> fascinating uh, yeah. stuff um, <laughs> to present an insight on in where the card investigation yeah. uh, of the ODC
1: investigation well, can, can you remind us exactly what the ODCE is actually trying to investigate here like, what what is John Delaney under suspicion of doing and would the idea that he is uh, using the professional expertise of other FAI officials to conduct his personal business would that come into the investigation in any way?
3: Yeah, so the ODC is kind of Ireland's corporate watchdog, so they're investigating breaches of company law. Um, and and if, you're, if people can cast their minds back to 2019, we know that Deloitte, uh, who are the FAI's auditors, reported the FAI themselves for not keeping proper books of account. So arising from that, there's a number of transactions um, and that they're investigating, including in that are payments to Susan Keegan from the FAI, who was John Delaney's ex-girlfriend. There's a €100,000 transaction that went from the FAI to Paddy Goodwin who was both the F- an FAI solicitor external but also Delaney's personal solicitor and we know from the audits that have been done on the FAI that that transaction was marked family law so the, the ODC are investigating why it was a 100,000 euro payment made to, to the client account of Paddy Goodwin under um, on, on family law and they're also investigating uh, transactions to, between um, that involved this company called Pillarview. So they're all, these are all company law um, the suspicion of what the company law could be breached now, obviously Delaney has maintained his uh, absolute you know, right to, um, that he, there's no breach of company law here mm. he maintained his right that there's legal privilege over these documents and so a lot of people think that you know this, this investigation has gone cold or nothing's going to happen but it's a very much a live investigation yeah. and the ODC has made clear to the High Court that we think these documents are necessary to further our criminal sure.
1: investigation uh, So they've made that submission to the High Court as you said they did it inside the last four weeks or so do we know how long it might take the High Court to decide whether this correspondence should be turned over?
3: Yeah, so Judge Leone Reynolds, who's presided over this matter for the last two and a half years, she said, you know, she's cognizant of how long this has dragged on for. You know, she's kind of had, had kicked both sides for kind of tardiness, uh, both the ODC and Delaney side for or some, some, she kind of cast the blame wide on that. But she said, you know, she's cognizant of how long this is uh, uh, last and she's from, she's reserved her judgment, which you know could be in days, could be weeks, but I, I don't think it will drag on much longer. We'll we'll get a kind of a, a final verdict on whether these emails can be released mm. to the investigators in the next few weeks. Uh,
1: and and I'm sure whenever she does issue that verdict, she'll be reporting extensively about it uh, in the Sunday Independent. Mark Tiger reporter with the Sunday Independent. Thank you for bringing us up to speed uh, and all of that this morning. Giant Mark's piece about uh, what is contained in that correspondence uh, is on pages one and five uh, of today's uh, Sunday independent Um, a few texts coming in about the cost of living and something about the polls Uh, some person says that maybe the banks will have to ease up on customers a little bit when they come looking for some arrangements to deal with the cost of living i spoke to my bank the other day this person says to extend the the repayment term of a personal loan and the person said sorry my problem is mainly third level education which banks apparently consider to be a lifestyle choice the point this person says is that their student is going into their last year of the degree and they wouldn't be asking if utilities and fuel weren't so high Uh, somebody else says they agree with john lee's take on uh, the polls um the budget pro approach is archaic COVID changed everything and it let the public know how quickly the government can actually act and make big decisions to help people they can't stick to this rigid approach anymore flexibility is everything um, and someone else just says you <laughs> thanks to uh, to John's uh, family members who've been texting in to, uh, support supporting this morning uh five through one six if you want to do likewise um someone else uh, they haven't put their names to all of this I, I don't know whether this is the same person who has sent all of these texts but somebody <laughs> says uh, you ignore all the other polls that show a different picture uh, I don't know what other polls show a different picture they all show Sinn Féin with a comfortable lead um, maybe it's about uh, the outlook of Fianna Fáil I don't know um, you sound like hurlers on the ditch says somebody possibly the same person somebody has to guide the ship and someone else says did anyone cost all those Sinn Féin promises well that's a question that we'll put uh, to Pierre Starting when we're talking to him after uh, 12 o'clock um, John Lee and uh, uh, Lauren Bowling as the said are still with me in studio John you're writing today uh, in a piece which people may have also heard on, on Tina Gate's news Bulletin a little while ago about new rules that are going to be brought in to try and clamp down on overseas investments or at least to try to filter out some sort of overseas investment that maybe the government would rather not exist in Ireland. Are we in a position to, to filter out investment? I, I thought the country was mad keen to try
0: and get foreign money in the door. It depends on who it comes from, clearly. This is, um, we mentioned earlier on that Leo Radker has been on a bit of a blitz. So a, a bit like Tom Cruise, that is um, Top Gun movie make it clear to us that it was the Russians he was taking on uh, Leo okay. is taking on I thought it was Russians the Iranians here. I haven't
1: seen it but I thought the inference was that it was the Iranians I thought Tom but Tom but just Albert. because
0: of the, the topography it was very cold and wintry looking okay. when they got there so I I, I presumed right. it to be Russia but it might be my right. gratitude
1: 53106 if you want to let us know who Tom, Tom, <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise's <laughs> latest enemy <laughs> who is who did you Go think on, it was
0: John? but um, so he's th- we, we were briefed then from within government that th- this is uh, a lot about um, principally about Russia maybe China as well um yes we encourage in in, in uh, foreign investment but in particularly vital areas such as health services electricity grid military infrastructure ports airports etc um in in the documentation we were giving, given by the department of enterprise the, these are areas they certainly want to screen um investment in uh from from third party from third countries i think they call them mm. and the minister would be given sweeping powers to then, um, having analysed the background of these companies, to reject their I- investment. Um, I suppose we are in a comfortable position where the majority of our foreign direct investment comes from the united states mm. they come, come comes from companies we are used to dealing with uh, i very high profile it companies and uh, pharmaceutical firms and we must feel that we are comfortable enough taking those money but as i say th- those those monies as i say we were also briefed that it was particular um, jurisdictions that they okay. were that w- they were concerned and about? D- did
1: they dare name those jurisdictions? What no, was no, it, was the, it was it a, a hit list of all of the top good imaginary one, enemies? Was there it was it no Iran mention of Russia? Iran. I don't know how yeah. much
0: foreign direct investment we get from from there, but mm. certainly Russia was mentioned. I
1: certainly remember in the last ten years there being some discussion around Ireland trying to be a hub for what they called Islamic finance, and if if they're now in. Ver- uh, placing some sort of moral code on the money that's coming into the country it'd be interesting to see how those two things are, are compatible maybe there isn't any issue I don't know um, Lauren this is extensively briefed so one imagines that Leo Varadkar is pretty confident that he's going to um, get it over the line any reflections that you have on the extent of coverage there is in today's papers?
2: Yeah I mean I think there's an interesting line in in, in the statement that his, that his office put out where he says um, that he thinks it's an important safeguard which he hopes we never have to use um, you'd imagine that if they're going to the effort of putting these powers in place that it is with a view that it may be necessary to use mm. them at some point, um, and certainly, uh, similar measures have been used in other EU countries. The, the front page article on the Sunday Times gives some examples of instances, in say, in Germany, for example, where uh, uh, Chinese companies uh, were thwarted. Um, I think also what you mentioned there around uh, imposing a moral code on on investments is interesting because mm. there is always this question, I suppose, when when terms like security and and public order are put out around, what do those actually mean and how are we defining them and, and who mm. is defining them um, and uh, what the implications of them will be. Um, so I suppose, yeah, Leo Wagner, there saying he hopes we never have to use it. It will be interesting to see if it is used, how it is used.
1: Mm. Um, it's kind of interesting that this is maybe a little bit of a, a, a sidebar, John, but. But um, this is coming from Leo Varadkar and he's, he's, you know, as you mentioned, if Russia is one of the jurisdictions that they're trying to uh, make sure that there isn't any kind of shady influence in Irish affairs. This coming from the same government that has tried to negotiate a carve out from Russian sanctions to make sure that Oleg Deripaska, the proprietor of Oganish Illumina, uh, doesn't have his business interests in Ireland affected. So clearly there, there is some attitude where from time to time we are prepared to try and make some carve outs if it's necessary to safeguard jobs in certain areas
0: well they're selective of course and as this uh, this legislation proposed legislation seems to say that they are um selective in that it'll come down to the decision of one man um i hadn't made that connection but um we go back 20 years almost i don't recall there being any attempts to cut back on um us investment after some of their foreign um foreign escapades which mm. have been roundly condemned since when you get into the area i think of um moral judgment on where money comes from you're into very very difficult territory you know none of us would um i think um rebuff Saudi Arabian um uh, investment here yes we see the golf world a minority sport in some ways but a huge business sport in the united states yeah. tearing itself apart over a new tour that's fu- funded by the, by Saudi Arabia we get we, we're getting uh, um very concerned about uh, Russia yes the international community was 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 comfortable participating in a world cup there only in, in 2018 yeah. so y- there are other countries that believe that they are unduly suffering because of the sanctions um in Russia and now there are there are un, unexpected consequences when we see Russia now squaring up to Poland over um uh, over sanctions there we hadn't really seen as a problem to do with Kaliningrad formerly Konigsberg yeah an island of their territory so there are a lot of unintended consequences from sanctions and as we've mm. seen in Nimerick it, it, it was seen yeah. to be unfairly damaging a business there by some people in government. Yeah, uh,
1: just the, the thought strikes me as well, I'm going to go to a break now, but the thought strikes me that there'd be some countries that might say which sure, Ireland's a tax haven, so I don't want to be uh, taking any uh, beneficiary, I don't want to be accepting any investment from companies that are headquartered there because you never know how exactly that money was got, but I suppose it's, it's all uh, relative in, in the eye of the beholder. Um, it is 11.44, we're going to take a break. After that, we're going to be talking about the impact of Roe versus Wade and what it means now for America and the rest of the world. Don't go away. 11.47 this morning the 26th of June Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock this lunchtime on the record 53106 Fear text on the record NT is our hashtag on Twitter still joined in studio by John Lee executive editor of the Daily Mail Group Ireland and by Lauren Boland a reporter from uh, the journal.ie and Lauren there is uh, quite a lot written in today's papers about um, the uh, repeal or the overturning of Roe versus Wade that's the uh, American court decision which had until uh, Friday um, guaranteed the federal right to an abortion across the United States that's now been unpicked so it's now up to individual states to decide what their laws are going to be and there is an awful lot of coverage in the papers a lot of which focuses on the idea that America is now becoming even more polarised and perhaps ungovernable.
2: Yeah I mean you can't really underestimate just the implications, the extent of the implications that this has um, for reproductive rights, for kind of wider questions around the role of the Supreme Court's power, I guess, in the U.S. Its its potential ability to to roll back on other on other decisions that were made around things like uh, same-sex marriage, even interracial marriage. Um, I think there's a there's a really interesting article in the Sunday Independent by a professor at Yale Law School, um, who looks at the, you know, the arguments that the Supreme Court made around that it's trying to revert, I suppose, to a more what it what it what the majority opinion has has called a more accurate interpretation of, I guess, the historic context of where this amendment that it all hinges on came in. Yeah. Um, but uh, but this professor writes that you know during the 19th century campaign against abortion, advocates for laws banning the practice argued they were necessary. To enforce women's maternal, t- maternal and marital duties, and to protect ethno-religious character of the nation, so claims about protecting unborn life were not freestanding as the majority opinion claims, mm. but were deeply entangled with constitutionally suspect judgments. And you can get into all this kind of thing about, um, I suppose, the nitty-gritty around the constitution. But what matters right now um, is the the immediate effect that this is having on people's lives mm. in those states, in particular, with the trigger laws, where it's coming into immediate effect, and then also. So uh, in areas where you know slowly but surely there there could be a walking back um, of uh, access to abortion yeah. places where people might still be able to access uh, pills but not I suppose a procedure and I and and the point that always has to be made in these is when this when whenever there is a change or you know a walking back of legislation around abortion. Um, it's it's not that you are banning abortion but it's that you're you're preventing access to safe and legal abortions mm. so abortions will still continue to happen um but you know people m- have to travel for them have to do it you know under under the radar are risking uh, prosecution for it and mm. um, but that they will still happen
1: there were some fascinating maps that I saw uh, been produced in the last uh, couple of days in the aftermath of all of this because now when you include states that have trigger laws or states that are about to introduce effective complete bans Texas being one example if you live down to the furthest southern corner of Texas close to Mexico the drive to the nearest sanctioned uh, abortion facility would, would literally bring you hundreds if not even close mm-hmm. to a thousand miles it would literally be hours and hours and hours of driving to get there so it is a, a practical ban for a lot of people um, without making this too, too American centric because we were talking to, to Killian Woods who's in New York for the Business Post uh, in the next hour, about what it means for America. Um, do you think it will influence things materially in Ireland, or do we do we consider questions like this into other parts of the world to be settled and they're now closed and we moved on, and that this doesn't matter to us too much?
2: I mean, I suppose because we had this conversation ourselves in Ireland so recently, I don't think I I, I don't think there's necessarily any fear of that can being reopened for us right now it does have you know it is worrying I suppose when you think about America's position in the world and how much of a leader it is for if you know for better or for worse yeah. uh, in many ways for worse uh, the way things are going these days but um I think it is interesting looking at it from the Irish perspective because of, you know, the differences in the way our systems work and how, you know, we put through um, Repeal the Eighth by referendum and I think and in those months kind of leading and, and years even leading up to that referendum in 2018, we were looking at other countries around the world, places like America that had, uh, you know, legislation or, you know, regulation for abortion since mm. the 70s. Very much a sense here in Ireland that, you know, we were behind the times that, you know, looking at other places in Europe how the majority of, of other countries had, uh, you know, to varying, degrees uh, regulation for abortion um, and very much a sense here we were behind the times and some some, I suppose some sense of inevitability that you know ultimately yeah. you're you know you're looking at a timeline yeah. I guess people are on but a because, places, because other countries have forward. done it so now we're catching yeah. up yeah. so everyone's you know moving kind of in the same direction I guess but now this is a, a total turnaround from mm. the states which is really alarming
1: Yeah. Um, one texture to 53106 who hasn't signed their name says that the uniformly pinko Irish media didn't get the massive drums, uh, massive votes for Trump Brexit or ban at all now now, you similarly don't get how overturning Roe versus Wade is democracy at work. Um, I'm not sure how I do get whether what a court does and its interpretation of law is democracy at work, although um, I suppose I do note that it, I find it fascinating that Barack Obama wasn't allowed to uh, appoint a new judge in the final year of of his presidency while Donald Trump was allowed to appoint a new judge within the final month of his but maybe that's a a question for another day Um, John Lee there is this this question around whether this might influence feelings around the world because in the same way that pro-choice advocates would say that America was a leader and that Ireland was late in catching up whether this does give more momentum not necessarily to short-term changes in Ireland but whether it might embolden conservatives around the world or indeed whether it could be an electoral asset for Democrats because it
0: now energises their voters Well there was I found the coverage fascinating for, uh, uh, firstly, to answer your first question, I think that it, that it won't particularly influence Ireland because this is a uniquely American culture war. There was a piece I read, and I'll try, I'll maybe tweet it for your listeners if they want to yeah, if please you can do. read it, by a woman called Liz Lenz in the Financial Times yesterday, uh, an essay where she, she equated the battle for and against abortion. it's clear by the end of it that she was a very much a campaigner for liberalisation of abortion. Uh, and and political culture wars in the United States. In the early 70s, <clears throat> 1973 was Roe versus Wade. Uh, let's not forget, it was a year after the Watergate break, um, break-in and where um, the Republicans United with the evangelical evangelical movement to bring abortion into the political movement that was something called new conservatism, the new right, and it has been very much at the centre of of politics in the United States since then. There has been something of a revolution where um, Pat Buchanan, for instance, uh, who worked for Richard Nixon, spied the potential of it for um, taking over Catholic. Democratic voters mm. into the Republican um, umbrella because they were anti-abortion and it yeah. moved on so the through Republicans, Reagan Republicans
1: and were moving away from that sort of religious doctrine or that religious influence on their morality and their outlook and the Republicans decided right well let, let's take it up if it's vacant ground
0: yeah, absolutely. So it's all it's all politics in the end. And then r- r- Donald Trump may be gone. Um, he may end up in jail. And there is a movement on there in the Congress to put him in jail. That doesn't mean that this philosophy and this this culture war is over. And as you pointed out, crucially, um, Barack Obama wasn't allowed uh, move in the Supreme Court move a move a nominee in. You go back to the 1930s. Franklin D. Roosevelt um, was forced to back down on packing the packing the Supreme Court, which was a huge political mm. um, politically damaging event for him. We were un- uh, people were unlucky with Trump, and the American people might think. At the moment, looking at Roe versus Wade, they were they were unlucky with events. Um, if they are supporting abort- uh, abortion, abortion liberalisation, because he was able to afford uh, a point uniquely, really in a presidency yeah. as short as his three, three, three nominees. Yeah. and over here we didn't quite take it in, um, at the import of it there uh, of that there, but we certainly do now. Yeah.
1: Uh, quite a few texts coming in on this uh, Jim says basically the US is now a fundamentalist country no different to Afghanistan or other countries with Sharia law he says uh, and somebody else who takes the converse view says that the overturning of Roe versus Wade gives hope to millions around the world that it is still possible to turn back the leftist tide and protect unborn children in the future it has provided a beacon of light in the endless darkness imposed by the leftist media between darkness and defeat hope now survives says that texter um, I, John I, I know that you're a massive scholar of American uh, political history so you, you could live literally talk uh, for the rest of the show which is why I'm afraid we're going to have to draw a polite line under it now John Lee Executive Editor of the Daily Mail Group in Ireland and Lauren Bolden reporter with the Journal.ie. thank
0: you both very much for
1: coming in uh, to run the rule over this morning's newspapers
0: On the Record with Gavin Riley brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk.